Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sangam Namasami Today is the new moon. It is an auspicious day for monastics in particular, being the time that we gather to recite our rule, 311 rules for the bhikkhunis and 227 for the bhikkhus. You might wonder how come we have more. It's a protection. The Buddha understood the differences require other forms of protection and ways of working with male nature, the female nature. They're different. And it's very wisely develops a system through insight and wisdom. It was the first time for many of us to gather together to recite the rule. A very uplifting experience and tremendous step forward in the evolution of the bhikkhuni order for Theravada Buddhism, made possible through the generosity of this wonderful community here. Having taken or reestablished our vows and purified our minds, we return to the practice And the practice is always right here. Whether we're alone or whether we're together, we have the benefit of a very strong container. We have specific rules. It's a bit like a train on tracks. A train easily goes through the countryside because these wonderful tracks have been laid down and the wheels are designed to fit right on those tracks and it runs along the train runs along through all kinds of terrain but as long as it stays on the track stays on track it's going to arrive at its destination for us if we just follow the rules and the conventions the observances that the Buddha offered us it's like a gift here's a track that's very solid and very appropriate. Even though some elements of the track or some of the stops on the way might seem a little archaic, in fact, they're very helpful for developing mindfulness. And we hold them as a package out of respect, love, gratitude, and reverence for the Blessed One regardless of what society might tell us, we trust this package 
We trust the vehicle and we use it to accomplish the way. But to be able to do that, we have to actually live it, not just recite rules twice a month. We have to live those rules and live the form and use it to awaken. We use it as a protection, as a container. And that container is not only for monastics. This particular container, yes. But the Buddha also offered uh, levels of precepts. So there are the five precepts, the eight precepts, the ten precepts, and so forth. The very definition for a human being in, in this training and discipline is keeping the five precepts. It's a, a whole field of goodness contained within that for lay life. And one can also embellish them with renunciant precepts, such as the eight precepts, which you've been keeping here. And what this does for us, it also provides a track. If we use those tracks as reference points in our lives, then it's very helpful to prevent us getting off the path or losing the way, losing our direction, or even losing track of our aspiration. If we get lost in the forest or distracted by the landscape, which worldly pleasures and experiences are constantly offering us, then it's quite easy to get confused, to get lost, to get conflicted, distracted, disappointed, disillusioned, and give up. Or just stay where we are, enjoying worldly pleasures, and not remembering that, oh, there is this track to follow, and there I can do more. There is something beyond this to be done. And it is not beyond our doing. So it's very valuable to have a form and to develop it. There are so many things within the monastic form that help keep us on track besides just these two points in the month when we gather and reaffirm purity or clear the things that we've neglected or points where we've been heedless. There are the robes, there's our alms bowl, there's our dependence on the kindness and generosity of the community. There's our reflections, our chanting, reminders that are constantly refreshing us in developing qualities of heart and qualities of conduct and speech that are befitting the monastic life and help us to feel worthy of the kindness and generosity that we receive. Otherwise, it becomes very difficult for us to eat the alms food, to receive the requisites and use them. We start to feel disconnected within. And oftentimes this is what leads people to leave, that just not feeling worthy, among other things, but it's not an easy path for sure. But 
these things, I think, are worthy of note for everyone, whether one is a monastic or not. The word monastic comes from mono, right? Mo, it, which means alone or one, being on one's own. But in fact, in monastic life, we live as a community. The paradox is that even though we are living together, essentially, we have to work out our own karma. And we support each other because we have the same reference, a strong reference to Vinaya, to a very highly refined code of ethics. And our container is well-defined. We all participate in that. We're all on the same page with it. And this is how we can live in harmony, in concord, in amity and affinity for each other. Even though there might be times when we go off, but we reconvene, we reconnect, and we reestablish that concord, that affinity, that harmony of heart to help us, to help each other continue. This is the value of Kalyanamita. It's a, a Kalyanamita that is not based on likes and dislikes or preferences or uh, personal allegiances. Our allegiance is to the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. We take refuge in the three jewels. We open our hearts to each other because we're not perfect. We come with all our imperfections of bag loads of imperfections. And we work out, we cleanse, we wash these blemishes together, but alone. Each one of us working out our own neuroses, complexities, whatever they are. And trying not to create a problem for each other. When we do, we have a whole set of mirrors. We very quickly start to see where we are because we're all bearing witness to each other's dukkha. Day by day, in community, nothing can be hidden. Why would one want to hide? That's part of the training, is to bring it out into the open. So being together and yet alone, in our togetherness, we support each other in discovering the jewels within our own hearts, not expecting our companions to be other than they are, to give us what we need or want, or fulfill our expectations and be perfect for us. We try to find the jewel within us by slowly digging like neophyte archaeologists. We use our Dhamma tools and we we excavate in our own hearts. And then in our silence and togetherness, we support that work that each one of us does. People come to visit and they say, oh, it's so, so wonderful here. It's so peaceful. We might be really going through the hell realms in here, but we're doing it using the vehicle that we've been given, working out our own karma with virtue, 
mental cultivation, developing wise ways of seeing that and holding it, not upsetting everyone. And if we do, we wash our laundry together so that each one of us alone, but also bringing it out in skillful ways so that we can clear it quickly and continue. And I think that's what people see. They don't see our dukkha, but they see the results of trying to work with the dukkha. There's a beauty and an energy. There's a kind of shininess that we might not even notice in ourselves, but other people feel it. I know when I come back to the monastery after being away and I walk through the gate, I feel it's such a wonderful feeling. And of course, there's a lot of work to be done and there's a lot of stress too. And there's, as Ajahn Suchito was describing, there are visitors coming and there are people wanting to leave and there's problems. Sometimes it seems disjointed and, and awful. And sometimes it feels heavenly. But we have the ability to work things through because we trust the path and we observe the arising of dukkha here, the arising and the cessation, day by day, moment by moment, and we see the results. We see the origin and the cessation, the origin the arising and cessation, day by day, the impermanence of that dukkha. It helps to polish the mirrors. And by having the opportunity to look and reflect to each other the difficulties and the results of facing and encountering them and clearing, purifying. That's the Eightfold Path. In lay life, I know there are opportunities to work together in this way. One doesn't just have to have these kinds of in-depth retreat situations, but to find real kalyanamita in daily life, that we can share the path, not just share our problems or our experiences in worldly ways, but to share practice and to share the obstacles, the delights and joys of practice, to share the blessings of the practice, and to support each other in the ways of goodness, in the ways of keeping precepts. How difficult it, it can be to really hold the container of keeping vows in daily life. But if we have friends who understand what we're doing and why we're doing it, then our strength doubles. We might have many, many friends, but how many of them can listen to the obstacles that we face or understand and share our love of the path and our allegiance to this vehicle, this precious vehicle? One of the Venerable Sisters exclaimed, how much she loves retreat. I was reflecting with her about when I was a young nun, I had the opportunity to spend some time at the Tangpulu Kabai Monastery near Santa Cruz when Langtai Sayada was there. He was one of these legendary type of 
meditation masters from the Burmese tradition. He was in his early 90s when I met him, and he was a practitioner of sitter's practice for life, so he never lay down. He had that most kindly, gentle look in his eyes that could penetrate right through you. I felt very blessed to be in his presence. And while I was there, being... In those days, there weren't nuns to be found, Westerners anyway. So I was looking for a monastery, and I heard about Ajahn Sumedho. Ajahn Sumedho was teaching in Santa Rosa. So I asked Lang Tezairo, please may I go and be on retreat with Ajahn Smedo. And he said, there's no such thing as retreat. I felt very disappointed because I really wanted to go and meet this great Western monk. And I knew there were nuns practicing with him. This was what I felt that I needed. But out of respect for this great meditation master, I felt that I couldn't go because he wasn't approving of it. There's no such thing as retreat. Here you have perfect conditions to practice. So I'd stayed and continued. But eventually I did have the opportunity to go and meet the nuns in England and ended up living there for 10 years. What I found living in community was quite different from what I found being on retreat all the time. And I think that this is a very important thing to consider because retreat gives us the chance to intensely focus and develop the tools of mindfulness, concentration, clear seeing, deep attention, and friendship with that which is lovely, cultivating the heart of loving kindness and compassion in a situation that is so conducive. So we strengthen ourselves. For some people, it is a beautiful thing and it is perhaps a very unusual and special kamma to be able to be a hermit or be on retreat most of the time. But for many of us, the kamma is different. My kama was not to stay on retreat in Burma close to the masters and enjoy the solitude and seclusion, the physical seclusion, the mental seclusion, and the seclusion from the defilements. So when I came into community, I realized that there was a whole area of my heart that I was not getting to know. I'd kind of put it on the shelf or disconnected myself from. Having to interact with people in the group and obey, be obedient. It was easy to be obedient to a great master, but it wasn't so easy to be obedient to women, my peers. The self-view comes in. Who are they to tell me what to do and that kind of thing? But then out of respect to one's elders in the robe to obey, to follow what you're asked to do, to rise up in community and pick up duties that you don't feel like doing. You want to go meditate. 
I remember Ajahn Sumedho telling us the story of when the monks were building, they were doing some building work, and Ajahn Sumedho didn't want to participate in that, and he basically told Ajahn Chah that he needed to go to his kuti and meditate. So Ajahn Chah announced to all the monks, Sumedho is going to meditate and we're all going to work. <laughs> and then, of course, when he went to his kuti to meditate, it was very hard to meditate knowing that everybody else was working. And that was what I started to learn. Sitting in my room and just wanting to do my practice and have my little seclusion while everybody was out cleaning the kitchen or setting up the hall or taking down a building, I couldn't be at peace. I just couldn't be with myself. I felt out of sync. I didn't feel in communion with my spiritual companions. And I had to look at that. I had a lot of resistance because I thought, well, what I'm doing is the higher path. But there was so much self in it. It felt really selfish and not beautiful. Little by little, I started showing up more and trying to fit in and do as I was told and drop my ideas of what the higher path is, realizing that I've got something to learn here, something that I didn't learn when I was on retreat in Burma, practiced 20 hours a day. It was exhilarating. But there was something exhilarating about mindfully working with my brothers and sisters and sharing the load of taking care of the community. And the sense of letting go my own agenda, just emptying out, clinging to something that obviously wasn't giving me peace, but it was just an idea in my head. I saw a lot of self-view coming up. I had to work that through and let that go. And I certainly wasn't going to be able to do it if I stayed in my room trying to meditate my way through it. My heart just wasn't big enough. And I saw the value, the greatness of letting go one's own ideas, one's own attachments to what's practice and what isn't practice. Practice, after all, is can I rub the sponge across the plates in the kitchen with mindfulness and care and joyful energy? What if the Buddha were to walk in and see the clean, lovely, sparkling kitchen? Are we doing this work just to get it done? Or are we doing it because of the joy of being in the monastery and adding to the shiny cleanliness of the container or making the place a sanctuary for people to come and train in or enjoy a day of mindfulness or listen to a teaching, a Dhamma talk. And could I give my heart to that since I didn't have any money to give or any other gifts, and I was giving my life, but what does it mean to give your life if you're not giving your energy, your time, your presence 
to the community and to the other members of the community to work next to them and share the load so that they don't have more to do than they can carry. And I particularly remember one day we used to have gruel together in the sala where we ate and practiced before we had a temple. So every morning we'd gather there and Ajahn Sumedha would sit uh, in the front where the shrine was and the monks on one side and the nuns on the other facing each other. Ajahn Suchito at the very right hand of Ajahn Sumedha, my mother superior. <laughs> Ajahn Sumedha would sometimes give reflections. Then we, we would eat the gruel and the hot drink in the same mug. It was just the simplicity and the contentment with what was offered. And then at the end, there would be announcements. The work monk or nun would announce the jobs that were available. There were certain jobs that I didn't particularly like, so I wouldn't raise my hand if one of those jobs was announced. And there was one nun, she would say, I'll do that. Let me, let me. It always surprised me when she did that. And eventually, I started to realize, what a beautiful thing. Here I am sitting, hoping that I can find a job that I will like, and then I'll raise my hand. And the jobs that I like won't get taken by someone else. And there's somebody actually ready to do absolutely anything. And when no one's raising their hand, her hand is the first one up. And I used to pride myself on being the first one in the meditation hall every morning. I'll be the first one there. But I couldn't be the first one to pick up my hand to work. I would feel ashamed. What, what kind of generosity is that? And then Lung Po, Sumedho, would teach us the Eightfold Noble Path but also dana sila samadhi panya, dana, generosity, sila, virtue, samadhi, mental cultivation, and then panya, wisdom. And I thought, I'm in deep trouble here because what kind of wisdom am I going to cultivate if I don't have the generosity of that nun? It was Sister Kovida. So I started raising my hand. Didn't matter. I just thought, I'll try it out. No, I was nervous because I was so attached to meditation practice. That's how I'm going to purify my heart. But there was a whole area of holding that I didn't even realize was there. And I didn't have enough tools to let it go. But the community just by example, was offering me these tools and they were coming in a form that wasn't presented through the medium of retreat where everything is laid on for you. Certainly in Burma, just practice. Eat, no yogi jobs, everything is cleaned for you. You eat, and of course you get sick a lot. And um, you get really skinny. I remember there was one yogi that was so sick, she actually had 
some kind of condition of worms, and the worms were dropping from her body on the floor of the meditation hall, and she wouldn't take any medicine. Finally, myself and one other yogi conspired to get medicine from town and corner her and get her to take this medicine because it it was just so asuba. (laughs) I'm the angry type. So I I learned this because uh, Sayuri Upandita, once during an interview, told me that I was the angry type, and I said, no, I am not. (laughs) I just didn't find the worms helpful. Ten years of community life, it wears you down in such a beautiful way. It's like a stone. Ajahn Amaro often gave this comparison that you put these rough rocks into a little tumbler and you mix them and they become smooth. And that's just exactly what community life does. It has the effect, it's like a a gentle, unwavering, and inexhaustible pressure that polishes and sands down your rough spots against your will. (laughs) You don't want it, and it's persistent, unrelenting. And little by little you begin to see, this is really good for me. This really does polish away the things that I, I can't seem to get to with my good meditation practice, whatever that means, my views of my meditation practice. To develop right view, we really need our kalyanamitas around us, reflecting all those sharp bits over and over and over again, even to the point where we become frightened of them. But in a healthy way, it's the fear of acting from those places that are not beautiful, not wholesome, not skillful, not healthy. They shine the mirror in just the way when you drive your car, you know, if you don't have a rear view mirror and side mirrors, how can you see the other vehicles safely enough to change lanes, to maneuver well on the path, on your road to where you're going? And on the path, on the Noble Eightfold Path, we need these noble mirrors to help us see on all sides, especially the sides where we don't want to look. We only look at the beautiful bits and have the exhilarating joy or peace that we want to hang on to. And we don't want to go back into the the world with its chaos and confusion and cruelty and violence where we feel we'll be violated. But if we can really get down to the nitty-gritty of our own inner violence, our own inner chaotic, neurotic, deflated, depressed, ancient hurts that just burden us unknowingly, we're not even aware We only see the tip of the iceberg. But those mirrors 
give us the full-length view. This is what you present. This is, this is what you are. Not you, but this is what we experience of you. Thanks a lot. <laughs> but yes, at first it's hard to see, and we resist. And then we start to realize, hmm, I don't want that. I want to purify that. Help me do my laundry. And so we help each other to purify, to clear, to polish the inner mirror just by encountering our own fear, our own our anger. How dare you talk to me like that? We might not say it, but it's here. And our faces, especially living with like-minded and same-gender companions, we cannot hide. We know our body language. We can't strategize our way out with flattery or pleasant words. We just can't. As we grow old together in the Dhamma and start to see the, the breakdown, the decrepitness coming, the fading away, oh my, how much the compassion begins to pour forth and how much we lean on each other. And when we experience the joy of sharing some deep hurts and grievances that together with spiritual friends, we dissolve as we can't dissolve on our own. We don't have the strength. And that's when the Buddha is burned into the heart, burned in. What do I mean by that? It's like the fire of the Dhamma, burning away the defilements. It's like the fire of Chanda, that burning eagerness to practice. When we do our recitation, by coming we present our Chanda, and if we're absent, we send Chanda, it means we send our consent to whatever is decided. For the practice of the holy life, chanda takes on the meaning of surrender, of patience, of accepting the conditions that are offered with gratitude because we know that this will help us to grow, to use that earnest wish to complete the path with unwavering, with a a heroic patience, a noble patience that can keep us on those tracks, steady, tireless, enduring, compassionate, tolerant, obedient to that which supports us, humble, modest, contented, grateful. And we grow in that kind of virtue that becomes unblemished. We would not endanger it for anything. We see danger in the slightest fault. It doesn't mean we're perfect. Sure, we trip up, but they're on more minor points. We would not intentionally harm anyone, including ourselves. And this is the value of the mirror, the meditation practice, the clear seeing, clearing the way, allowing the 
mental faculties to develop and grow. And taking physical seclusion, this is kaya viveka that we have here in retreat opportunities, so that we can develop chitta viveka. We grow the faith, the energy, mindfulness, concentration or unification of mind and wisdom. And we grow the four right efforts of disbanding that which doesn't support us and gathering together the factors that do support us, that brighten our energy and strengthen it, that give us greater patience and endurance, stamina and resilience. We don't get trapped in fear. We start to understand and see the emptiness of those conditions and we also don't take them personally. We understand that we we come with a karmic load that can be slowly, slowly let go of. Understanding how to move towards the unconditioned. And then the mind becomes powerful, strong, bright, clear, confident. And our conviction supports us. We no longer believe in those intruders and imposters that invade our mental heart space. This space is for freedom. It's for us to experience the freedom from those imposters, not to keep handing that space over to them. And when we understand the process of how they get in and how to prevent them from taking that precious space, emptying out, doing the laundry every moment of our lives for as long as we have and for the lives that may come. In this way, we win back the borders of our heart. But we have to have enough wisdom to know what will support us in this process. So the deep attention and the sensitivity are invaluable. But then we must rely on those kalyanamita and seek them out and use the precepts to ennoble our virtue and sustain it against the most fierce tempests of the world. Because we know These are precious tracks from which we do not want to veer. And they will help steer us forward, fulfill that yearning, that aspiration. And this is not beyond our doing. If we don't learn these lessons then it's very difficult for us to find the friendship with the lovely. Friendship with the lovely begins with spiritual friends that are on the outside. But in the end, we're alone. We're there, we're in the monastery or we're in lay life with our families, our loved ones. But in the end, we're alone. We get old, we get sick, and we die alone. Even if our friends are around us, we have to experience that alone. 
But if we have the Buddha as our most dear friend, the Buddha means we hold the Dhamma here. The Dhamma has imbued, pervaded our hearts. Then we're never alone. We have the Sangha here. This will be my support when this body falls apart. The Buddha is my refuge. The Dhamma is my refuge. The Sangha is my refuge. So these are the ways that by developing spiritual companionship, we need not fear being alone because it does hold us. And the meaning of Dhamma is that which holds up. It comes from dhar. The root is holding up, being held up. The Dhamma upholds those who uphold the Dhamma. We must try to remember that which upholds us. To uphold the Dhamma here, whether we're alone or with spiritual friends, until we can really hold the Dhamma on our own, stay close to them, meet together, have a beautiful shrine in your home, have all the reminders you need. Take one day a week just for practice or just for a Kalyanamita day. Come to Spirit Rock and do some work in the garden. I met someone in the garden on the very first day. She said, I'm a volunteer gardener. And she was picking off some parasite from the bushes, little by little, picking such a gentle work. And she was beaming. Incredible generosity of contributing to a field of goodness that supports other people's practice, not just our own. Then you develop a community that is a blessing for the whole world. And this holds us on the path now and in days and years to come. It's been really a joy for me, I'm sure for all of us, to share the Dhamma together. And I hope that you will take these blessings out and not feel that you're far away from these blessings, even if you're not in this space, by referencing your mind to what was experienced here and bringing that into the temple the retreat, deep retreat of your own heart, you develop citta viveka, the seclusion of the heart. You may be out in the world and you may not be alone, but you develop enough seclusion of mind by strengthening your practice until you have upadi viveka, where the defilements know they cannot invade. And we only get there by practicing exactly where we are. Not feeling we have to get somewhere else to practice. A practice is in the place where it feels impossible. Wherever we are, that's where the lessons will come. And we might be afraid, but we can wing it. And see, test the Dhamma wings. Try one, try the other. 
it might feel broken. We were talking about broken wing. I have to tell you about an amazing Canadian teenager named Terry Fox who had cancer and had to have his leg amputated and he was an athlete. Have you ever heard of a Terry Fox run? Anyone? Every Canadian knows about Terry Fox runs. So Terry Fox ran on one leg from the east coast of Canada almost across the whole country. I think he reached Sudbury or right across Ontario before the cancer returned. And then he died. And his aim was to raise money for cancer research because he had been so helped through his illness to get the strength to be able to run again with a prosthetic device. With one leg he ran. Ran and ran and ran. One leg. I was in a monastery when this happened. I only heard about it. But I remember seeing a photograph of this wonderful young teenage kid running on one leg with a support team in a vehicle behind him with water and food for the journey. And he had this look on his face. He wanted to raise a dollar for every Canadian. There were 28 million Canadians at that time. And he raised $28 million dollars even while he was still alive. But since he died, the Terry Fox runs around the world have raised over $550 million for cancer research. Just from this one man's intention to help others to get well. Even though his body was like that, So it is not beyond our doing. We have to see ourselves as whole. Even if we're blind, we can still see. The seeing we need to do is an internal one. Even if we have to lose a limb or lose our ability to walk up the hill so we can come sit in the hall. I remember... It's an image I have of the Sisters of the Love of God. Do you remember them? We used to do retreats with these Christian nuns. We went to spend a few days with them in their monastery. We went in for the office in the church, and there were a whole row of nuns in wheelchairs. They were just ancient. Western nuns in Theravada Buddhism is a very new thing. In fact, I remember many people saying, I didn't know there were nuns. I thought they were only monks. But they're... So I looked at them and I thought, none of us are ancient, you know, we're all... But now I'm getting there. <laughs> and it's a beautiful thing to grow old in the Dhamma. What a wonderful thing to have Kalyanamitas who are also old. We don't have an ancient lineage that's living. Mahapajapati is 2,600 years ago, the Buddha's circuit mum. 
she was 65 when she was ordained. She worked very hard to get that ordination. And I think, how lucky can I be? A year younger than that. And I've already been in robes for such a long time because of what she did. How she walked barefoot for a couple of hundred kilometers, shaved her head, wearing the robe, walking in the muddy roads of India or the dusty roads of India to go to the Buddha and ask for the ordination. And then she became an arahant. You can read about her. Read the stories of our ancient arahant, noble sangha, in whose footsteps we are trying to walk. And come and listen to Dhamma talks and practice and serve spiritual community so that these teachings never die. Neither in the world, neither in your hearts. I offer that for your reflection tonight. Ah. Uh-huh.